This is Perspectives, the show where a conversation about our differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley, and if you're a frequent listener to this program, you know that over the course of 2021, we've had a number of conversations about the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma. These conversations have happened in the context of people who are opening up banks and creating opportunities, more opportunities for people of color to have access to capital and to bank easier. Sometimes we've talked a little bit about Greenwood. Sometimes we've not gone in great depth. Today, we're going to go into great depth. In the early 1900s, this Greenwood district of Tulsa was home to a thriving African-American community. But all of that changed between May 31st and June 1st, 100 years ago, the year 1921, when a mob of armed white Tulsans attacked the community. The book we are going to discuss and learn a lot more about what happened then is called Unspeakable, The Tulsa Race Massacre. The author is Carol Boston Weatherford. She is a two-time NAACP Image Award winner, a New York Times best-selling author of three Caldecott, and you're going to fix that, I'll fix that, uh, books, um, Freedom in Congo Square, Voice of Freedom, Fannie Lou Hamer, Spirit of the Civil Rights Movement, and Moses, When Harriet Tubman led her people to freedom. Family stories, fading traditions, and forgotten struggles inform her poetry, nonfiction, historical fiction, and biographies. Huffington Post calls her a master of picture book nonfiction. And I want to say welcome to Carol Boston Weatherford, poet and author to Perspectives, to speak about the Tulsa Race Massacre. Carol, hi, thanks for being with us. Thank you, I'm glad to be with you on Perspectives today, Congress. Now, the book that you've written, Unspeakable, The Tulsa Race Massacre, is a book that is not for you or for me, but for the kids. Tell me why you wanted to do it that way. Well, I am primarily a poet, but I am a poet who writes for young people. And I'm, I am, uh, I've been called the Dean of uh, African-American Children's Nonfiction. I write for children because we have to get them, we have to educate them as early as possible. Uh, my dad was an educator and used to say that children's minds are like sponges. And so they're most receptive uh, when they're young and their minds, their, their minds are more malleable. And that's, I think, the best time to combat some of the, the lies that they'll be told later and some of the attitudes that they might inherit from adults. What happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, May 31st through June 1st in 1921, is a story of unspeakable violence and horror. How do you present that dark of a story to a child? I take a forensic approach. Um, some, some of your listeners may watch uh, police procedural shows like Law and Order and uh, CSI. Well, I take a forensic approach and I, I recreate the Greenwood community in the first two thirds of the book. I show kids uh, the type of uh, 
pride and prosperity that resided in Greenwood. I tell them how African Americans made their way to Oklahoma uh, during uh, the Great Migration and even, even earlier during Reconstruction with the Exodus and, and how they built that community uh, that became home to Black Wall Street, the wealthiest uh, Black community in the entire nation. So I, I, I try to you know, rebuild that community first and show them you know, what, what existed. And then two thirds of the way in, I, I deal with the crime, the, the mob that burned Greenwood to the ground, leaving 8,000 people homeless and more than 300 dead. Talk to us more about the great migration and how black people, African-Americans, found themselves in Tulsa and made this their home. I remember the first time I visited the community and I was shamed because as an educated African-American woman, the stories I was being told were news to me and I'm in the news business. How can that be? Well, regardless of how educated we are or how culturally literate we consider ourselves to be, we are the products of the educational system and, and products of the, of the media that we, that we engage with. So if we don't come across these stories when we're in school, if we're not taught this, and then if we don't consume these, this kind of information online or uh, in the news, we don't find it in the news really, we don't know it. So the great migration, of course, was a period when many, many uh, African-Americans and, and, uh, and people of all races were moving from the South and moving from rural areas to urban areas. Of course, the reasons that people di uh, moved differed uh, by race. So African-Americans were leaving the South to escape oppression, the oppression of the sharecropping system and the oppression of uh, Ku Klux Klan violence that uh, you know was, was seeing people lynched and uh, put in jail uh, under the peonage system. So there was a lot to, you know, a lot to, uh, there were a lot of reasons to be for African-Americans to leave the South. And they found their way, uh, we found our way, of course, to some Northern cities and even out West to uh, Oklahoma and places like California uh, in hopes of finding a better life, having better uh, opportunities. Um, in some places like Oklahoma and Kansas and places in the in the Midwest, there were even promises of land. And so they, you know, they went to they went to these areas seeking a better life and, and greater opportunities. And the Great Migration saw you know hundreds of thousands of, of African Americans move from the, the South to other parts of the country in hopes of, of that better life. Talk to our listeners about Black Wall Street and the affluence that resulted in this community. All right, Black Wall Street um, was, was made possible in large part because of the oil boom in Oklahoma. And Black people shared in that prosperity. Um, I don't know if we were, if, if Black people were oil men per se, but we did we nevertheless prospered as a result of it because we worked, we worked in white homes and we had businesses that served the larger community as well. And so there was a lot of money out there. 
at the time because of the oil boom. Black Wall Street was a one mile stretch along Greenwood Avenue that as I said was the wealthiest black district in the United States. And let me just do a little tally for you. There were 200 businesses in all, dozens of restaurants and grocery stores, two newspapers, uh, three theaters, one of which was the Black-owned Black Dreamland Theater. There were 20 churches, several libraries, a hospital, 15 Black doctors, a post office, and a separate school system that some say was even better than the white school system. So, you know, we, we, built, we had built quite a bit. Uh, 10,000 people lived in the 35 square block area that was known as Greenwood. And you said as a result of the riot of those 10,000 people, 8,000 were left homeless? 8,000 were left homeless, yes. And, you know, the community was burned uh, to the ground. Uh, the, the violence erupted after a black, a, a black teenage shoeshine man and a white teenage elevator operator at a department store or a downtown building had some kind of uh, altercation. I don't, I don't even think it was an argument. No one really knows what happened, whether he stepped on a toe, bumped into her, or whether he did nothing. And she just, you know, and she just screamed, you know, as, as was sometimes the case with, with white women in that, during that period. You know, there were many, many cases where white women trumped up charges against black men. And this man was jailed, and a white mob gathered around the jail to lynch him. And the sheriff would not release him. Black people, black men, uh, some of whom were World War II veterans, had World War I veterans, I'm sorry, had heard about this and gathered around the jail to protect them. And they succeeded, but, uh, but then uh, fights ensued between those two groups. They, was, that was, they were small groups at that time. Uh, actually, the black, the black group was smaller than the white group, but uh, they were successful in saving that man's life. Unfortunately, 12 people were killed during that particular incident on May 31st. And then that in the hours that followed, the white community began to spread a rumor that the black, that black people were going to attack the white community. And so instead, a white mob formed that attacked the black community. And the, the, they were, the, the black community was just out, outnumbered and outgunned and could not, you know, really could not save off the, the, the massacre. And there was, you know, there was nothing left for them to do but flee. And before all of this happened at the end of May, start of June of 1921, these two communities lived separately they live but separately. equally yeah. they, live they live separately we won't say they live equally but they live separately and one thing i one thing i omitted which is not really part of necessarily part of black wall street the, the black business story but it is uh it, it can paint a picture of the kind of prosperity that resided in greenwood is that there were six people who, who owned private airplanes six black people owned private airplanes i i don't even know six people today who owned private airplanes. And this was at, you know, in the beginning, flight was, air, air, airplanes were really in the infancy at that time. 
So you can imagine that with that kind of prosperity in a black community, that the white whites who you know were living the lie of white supremacy were angered by it. So you know, all it took was this one more incident on an elevator for you know the the powder keg to be up. And for, and for fights to turn on the Black community that they resented to begin with. Because of their perceived success. Yes, exactly. Because, you know, I always say that the greatest threat to white, uh, white supremacy is Black advancement. And, you know, what, what shows Black advancement more than monetary success? I mean, that's the, you know, that's the greatest outward symbol of it, you know, until you get a Black president. What, if anything, ever happened, do we know, to the woman who was the elevator operator? No, we don't know what happened to her. Uh, we do know that the man um, left, the, the, after the, the massacre, the man was freed by the sheriff, and he left town, never to be seen again. So, I'm, you know, I assume she stayed in town. I, we don't have, you know, her, her story, like we have the story of uh, the woman who, accused, who falsely accused Emmett Till of uh, whistling at her, winking at her, whatever. Um, so her story was not followed. And in fact, the whole incident was swept under the rug by the white power structure at the time. Talk more about that. The, the Tulsa race massacre was not even taught in Oklahoma schools until the 21st century. So, you know, that if you, if listeners are wondering why they don't know about it. It's because there was a conscious effort uh, among the, the white political leaders at that time to suppress the, the news of the, of the incident. It was called, it was billed as a riot. It was not really, a, it was not a riot. Uh, and in 1996, a commission that was charged by the state legislature with investigating the massacre, finally after 75 years, uh, said that it wasn't, declared that it had not been a riot and changed the name of the incident from the Tulsa Race Riot to the Tulsa Race Massacre so that, it, so that the name of the incident would actually reflect what it really was. And in your study and research, what would you tell our listeners the reasoning was behind the decision by the white power structure, as you described it at that time, to not discuss what happened and certainly not to teach it? Well, you know, they were guilty. You know, when you're guilty of something, you don't want to, you don't want to disclose. So, you know, if you disclose, then you're going to invite further scrutiny. And somebody, some of that scrutiny may, you know, someone who, who is scrutinizing maybe a person of conscience who points the finger at you and says, you're, you're guilty. So I, you know, it's the same reason that they don't want us to teach about uh, the 1619 pro uh, project in school. They're guilty. I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that has been in the news this week. And I know that the the author and editor behind the 1619 Project will actually be delivering one of the commencement addresses in, at one of our HBCUs in the coming weeks. What are your thoughts on the debate about the teaching of, of cultural competency in our schools? I, uh, I'm at a, I teach at an HBCU. I teach at Fayetteville State University. 
And I came through, um, at least in elementary school, I came through an all black school. So I was always taught African-American history when I was in elementary school. Of course, there were not as many resources to, to teach it as there are today, but my black teachers made sure that we were taught all that, that they poured into us all that they knew about African-American history. And I think that it's, it's very important that our story be told and that we tell it. You know, the, the decisions about curriculum have been made by, largely by white men. And they, they have decided whose story gets told and how it gets told. And it's time now for us to tell our own story and to make sure that it's told and told truthfully. And our, I, the reason I write what I write is because I believe that our children need the truth. Truth is power. And you can't have truth without reconciliation. So, you know, McConnell running around talking about the 1619 Project is divisive nonsense is itself nonsense. What significance do you find in the fact that this year marks 100 years since the Tulsa race massacre, the events of last year, the pandemic, and the social justice movement that we appear to be in in 2021? Well, one reason that I write what I write for children is so that they can put, they can have the his, historical background to put current events in context and to connect the dots between uh, the Tulsa race massacre and the insurrection of January 6th, so that they can connect the dots between that, that mob who wanted to lynch uh, the man whose name I can't even remember, the elevator, the, the shoeshine man, they wanted to lynch the shoeshine man, and Derek Chauvin who lynched George Floyd. You know, nothing, none of these things happen in a vacuum. And if we know our history, then we, we know that these things didn't just start yesterday. And that, that's why it, just, it does my heart so much good to see the social justice movement that grew out of uh, the, the murder of George Floyd. And yet no sooner than the Minneapolis jury convicted Derek Chauvin in that case, the next day and the day after, two other Black people lost their lives in altercations with law enforcement. How do you tell and teach that story to the kids? That's a hard story to teach. Um, there are several books that have, that have come out about um, police brutality. Um, quite a few, most of them are for, for young adults, however. Uh, so it's, that's a tough one to teach. But again, you know, we can't afford not to teach it to our kids because some of them are uh, subjected to that kind of violence at very young ages. I mean, Tamir Rice was only 12 years old when he was killed. So, you know, we have to, you know, we're having those, we have those conversations as parents in the home uh, and books like mine and like those that are written for older kids can help parents to have those conversations with their children. It's, it's reality. Some people, some people ask me, well, you know, isn't this too, uh, you know, are, are kids too tender for, this, for these tough topics? And I say, if children can be victimized by racism, then 
if black children and uh, children of color can be victimized by racism, then all children can learn about it. I mean, the only way that we can root it out is by telling the truth. In this 21st century society in which we live, individuals are able to curate the news and information content they receive based upon a personal point of view. Knowing that, how do you as a poet and a writer and a teacher get the facts out there to everybody when we live in a society where people will create their own facts and disagree with the real ones? Yeah, I think that that's a tough one as well because you know not everyone is going to uh, read my book. Um, one thing that I have found is that when I write books about subjects like the Tulsa Race Massacre or people like Fannie Lou Hamer, that often the adult who's sharing the book with the child is the the teacher or the parent is learning about that subject or that person at the same time that they're sharing the book. So that's you know so that's one way. But you know my books are not on social media. And you can't you can't read it. I mean, you can do a live reading of a, of a book on social media. But again, people are curating, picking and choosing what they want to um, to to read, what they want to consume. And again, that's a, another reason that the school curriculum is so important because that's you know that's the last time that it, sometimes that it can be mandated. You know what kind of information people are going to consume and what, what they're going to learn. And once they're out in the world, you know, they're they're on their own. They're like you said, they're picking and choosing, they're curating their uh their their news, their the, the kind of news they want to hear about and the point the political point of view uh that, that news is coming from. So what is it that you're hoping readers are going to take away from Unspeakable, the Tulsa Race Massacre? adults and the children who were, re who were being read to? Well, one part of the story is that it's a small part of it is that the community did rebuild. And, the, and there is a park called Reconciliation Park uh, in Tulsa that memorializes uh, you know, this event. Uh, but the, the message is about the resiliency and the remarkability of African-Americans. So, you know, we, we, have, we have been oppressed, but still we rise. You know, we're, we're resilient and our story is a remarkable one. And there are so many stories like the Tulsa Race Massacre that are little known or that have been hidden. And I hope that kids will, will be curious enough after, after reading my books and reading uh, other African-American books to seek out some of that information and to curate that information for themselves. Absolutely. Carol Boston Weatherford and the book illustrated by Floyd Cooper, Unspeakable, The Tulsa Race Massacre, I assume available everywhere books are sold. Correct. Uh, available everywhere books are sold. You can check out the uh, the website, africanamericanchildrensbookproject.org, and you can uh, link to the book from there, link to booksellers from there. Uh, and you can also find it at your local bookstore. And check me out at Poet Rutherford on Twitter and cbrutherford.com uh, is my website. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Perspectives is a community and public affairs program crafted with you in mind. If there's a guest you'd like to hear interviewed or a perspective you think should be explored, let me know. If you're old school, just write me. 1601 West Peachtree Street, Northeast, Atlanta, Georgia, 30309. Or message me via social media. I'm Condos Presley on Facebook, Condo29 on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Be sure to listen again next week at this very same time as we examine another perspective. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.